This ceremony was officiated by Jody Hojin Kimmel at the Zen Center of New York City. Hojin Sensei is the abbot of the Zen Center and head priest at Zen Mountain Monastery. This talk, like all of our talks, is offered free of charge. If you would like to make a donation or find out more about our various programs, visit us online at zmm.org slash zcnyc. Thanks for listening. So welcome. This morning we'll be doing a uh, novice ordination ceremony for Simon Seku Harrison. This is my first time ordaining someone. Um, I, uh, we did a postulant ceremony, which is very different, but this is my first ordination ceremony. Um, it's part of the journey for those who are in discernment of a monastic life, a monastic path, which is the path that Seku is taking. And in this ceremony, he'll be moving from a postulant uh, to a novice, a novitiate monastic, beginning to develop the vows of, of, of a monastic. And I really wanted to do this ceremony here so that you could see this um, calling, that this is in the world that you live in, that people are monastic, very few, at least in the Zen tradition. And so I really wanted to share that with all of you here. And also Seku practices down here um, when I'm in residency most of the time. Uh, since the time of the Buddha, um, monasticism has been the main practice in the time of the Buddha, in Buddhism, in the monastic tradition. The role of the monasteries was primarily for monastics, thousands of them, thousands of them. There were so many monasteries. And of course, um, it's a place where people are committed to living the Dharma in community and played a central role in Buddha Dharma. There were also lay people as well, all through history since the time of the Buddha, who developed their practice within family, work, their life. All practitioners of the Dharma have significant roles in society and were mutually intertwined and dependent upon each other. And in coming to the West, or to here, um, the Buddha Dharma has been much more secularized, as we know. There's very few monasteries in which people dedicating their lives to the Dharma can live within a monastic community, following monastic vows, Zen Mountain Monastery is one of them. This is a lay temple, so I'm the only monastic here. <laughs> I'm happy to be joined by Kian today, who just got fully ordained. Um, we were hoping a few more could come down, but we got, we got Kian. That's great. <laughs> so you can see more. <laughs> um, so... Um, I continue this tradition while I'm living here. And uh, Yunin is a, a lay practitioner, a senior, but together we maintain pretty much a monastic schedule for everyone to come in and out of so that you can sit morning and evening and do retreats and longer practices. My teachers, Daito Roshi and Shugen Roshi, have felt it's important that the life of the Dharma is both lay and monastic practice, and that they're each very distinct, and, how they, and we should know how they nurture each other. They're mutually dependent, and these distinct roles are important to bring to light how we support each other in our roles are needed. This is the way it has always been, and this is what we're still maintaining. 
these two um, kind of practice. And some actually are, there's some people who are more of a Daojin who come in for period, long periods of residence and go back in the world. And it's a, another kind of path that was at the time of the Buddha as well. So for those who are interested and have the calling for a monastic life, it's important to make it be able to come to fruition. It's important to offer that opportunity and that a person can find it. So I want you to see it. So if that's your calling, you can find it. You can know it as a possibility. Uh, Seku's journey, as well as every monastic, began through a process of entering the monastery in residential training. Sometimes, usually everyone starts with a month. They see how a month goes. And at some point within that process, um, Seku chose to um, become a formal student. In this case, um, I am his teacher. And then a person needs to be living in residency as they're contemplating a monastic life. And a person would not be in residency more than two years, the longest, before they would need to step out for a bit, enter the lay life, or they would enter another year discerning if they were um, going to take the monastic path as, as he did living together in community in a cloister, working with teachers and residents and participants who um, come in. And then at some point, a person requests the, um, to receive the bodhisattva precepts. As you see, there are many preceptors in the zendo today. They're wearing a black um, version of the Buddha's robe, smaller. And they have taken the path of a bodhisattva my teacher said, uh, Daida Roche used to say, it's basically you're wearing a shingle that says, how can I be of service? So Seku did that, or Simon did that, and he received the name Seku, which means touching, intimate with sky-like nature. Touching and being intimate with sky-like nature. And he has continued um, being in residency. And after a number of years as a practicing student, as a Jukai student, began expressing a calling for a monastic life. And then he began working with the monastic council, those who had already been ordained or were a little uh, in front of him, to discern um, entry into a period of postulancy which he is now stepping out of. And that's the beginning stage of a monastic life. There's no vows taken. A person puts on a black robe indicating their calling, their intention, and then begins relating to themselves and the community as a monastic. It's really important to make that shift. You know, it's interesting about garments or, um, you know, just going to black and um, <clears throat> the shift that that happens, how you both perceive yourself internally and how it's um, communicating externally. So you work with that for a while. And the exploration continues. Living in community continues. And uh, this discernment is very much alive and tested all through, all through one's life. Never, ne believe me, never finished. <laughs> so this ceremony today is the novice ordination. Um, it's a initiation, you can call it, a rite of passage. These are important things in our life. We all have them in some way marking certain transitions. And it does something to your state of consciousness and to others as well. And so he'll be continuing to develop these, receive the uh, beginning developments of the monastic vows more consciously and deeply. 
to see if this is the way he wants to live his life. And you, the Sangha, are brought into this ceremony as well, not just to bear witness, but to acknowledge that you're part of his purpose and he's part of your purpose. So we can think of this as an interwoven garment that we're one fabric together in this life. Again, that's how monastic and lay support one another. At this time, he will not be shaving his head, though the intention will be communicated, and you'll see that in the ceremony. So let us begin. First, uh, we always begin, as you saw this morning, with reverence, with bowing, um, with acknowledging Shakyamuni Buddha. So the first bow will be to the Buddha, three bows, intimately connected and indebted to our original teacher, Shakyamuni Buddha. This next set of bows will be to his parents. Again, acknowledging that mutual dependence, whether they're alive or dead, he will bow in the direction of his parents in gratitude for his blood lineage, for giving him life. That we don't arrive at any point on our own. We're, we're connected in so many ways. At this time, the main altar is closed, and this becomes the main altar. I will be serving as Kanchi, the preceptor, in this case. And his final three bows will be to myself, preceptor. Next, we'll do the invocation of the three treasures, Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha, the triple gems of the Buddhist tradition. This is the complete heart and mind and body of the Buddha. Buddha Shakyamuni is your body and the body of all beings. Dharma is all things, the whole phenomenal universe. It's the teachings of the Buddha because the teachings point to the essence of all things. And the Sangha is the community. There's lots of communities, but in particular this community that's practicing the Dharma, the Sangha of our order, it connects to all Buddhist communities, your family, those in the neighborhood, all beings in the universe, animate and inanimate. They, everything possesses the Buddha nature. And all these are invoked and brought forth into this room to witness the ordination. So if you thought it was crowded, <laughs> we're calling in a lot more, and there's a lot more room, actually. So I will um, chant this alone. Everybody, please, gosh, Be one with the Buddha in the ten directions. Be one with the Dharma in the ten directions. Be one with the Sangha in the ten directions. Be one with our original teacher, Shakyamuni Buddha. Be one with the great compassionate Avalokiteshvara Bodhisattva. Be one with the wise Samantabhadra Bodhisattva. Be one with the great wise Manjushri Bodhisattva. Be one with Koso Joyodaishi. Be one with Tai Sojo Saidaishi. Be one with the successive great ancestors. Be one with the Buddha in the ten directions. Be one with the Dharma in the ten directions. Be one with the Sangha in the ten directions. Be one with our original teacher, Shakyamuni Buddha. Be one with the great compassionate Avalokiteshvara. 
Lokiteshvara Bodhisattva. Be one with the great wise Mantra Bhadra Bodhisattva. Be one with the great wise Ma- Manju Shri Bodhisattva, be one with Kosojoyo Daishi, be one with Taisojo Saidaishi, be one with the successive great ancestors, be one with the Buddha in the ten directions, be one with the Sangha Dharma in the ten directions, be one with the Sangha in the ten directions, be one with our original teacher, Shakyamuni Buddha. Be one with the great compassionate Avalokiteshvara Bodhisattva. Be one with the great wise Samantabhadra Bodhisattva. Be one with the great wise Manjushri Bodhisattva. Be one with Kosojoyodaishi. Be one with Taisojosaidaishi. Be one with the successive great ancestors. Next, I'll remove, um, with your permission, a small lock of the recipient's hair, expressing his intention to be ordained and um, fully ordained. And this head shaving that the monastics do is to express how difficult it is to cut off our attachments, our human ties, While nothing is apart from this Buddha body, hair included, we shave the head as a physicalized way of manifesting our non-attachments. Hair does grow back, just like delusions and weeds, so it's a continuous (laughs) process. It's a reminder every fifth day to shave your head, when you shave your head, Um, what your intention is, but the hair also is a place of where we can keep attending to releasing, releasing to our attachments, to the body, to appearances, to the world, the way that we look out, and also the way we see ourselves. As an expression of your intention, I would like to remove a lock of your hair. Do I have your permission to do so? Yes. I promise it's just a little. So this will be um, placed on my altar and upon your full ordination the whole pile will go out into the earth. Hold it till then. Now we'll do what's called the Gotha of Atonement. It's a way we can begin fresh again with our actions, how we create karma, which is karma's action essentially, intention and action, what we make of ourselves through our body, our mouth, and our thought. Consciously or unconsciously, intentionally or unintentionally. And things may, that may sit heavily and burden our heart and mind and things we may have forgotten about. So this gatha is where we bring in all our past actions and face them simply and honestly so we can take responsibility for anything we have created through this atonement, which can also be said to be um, at one or the gotha of non-separation. At one with, where we can have space to move forward taking the energy that might have been bundled up and things you've done and being able to turn that more towards the the path. Regret, our remorse, 
or suppression and now focus it into your monastic life to deepen your understanding of yourself and others, the causes and conditions of being human and how we act. It also helps turn the karma of our ancestors. So when we take an action to heal, to be responsible, that goes backwards in anything that happened before as well as sets up what might happen in the future. So it goes all different directions when we atone, when we're at one with what we've done. And this happens to speak of harmful karma in particular. All harmful, it says evil, all evil karma ever committed by me since of old on account of my beginningless greed, anger, and ignorance. So those are the three poisons that usually generate our actions if we're not um, clear in that. Born of my body, mouth, and thought, now I atone for it all. And this will be a, a call and response uh, with the liturgist. We'll, we'll guide that. I'll start it off, and then you'll just repeat. We'll do this three times. Everybody, please, Gasho. All evil karma ever committed by me since of old. All evil karma ever committed by me since of old. On account of my beginningless greed, anger, and ignorance. body, mouth, and thought. Born of my body, mouth, and thought. Now I atone for it all. Now I atone for it all. All evil karma ever committed by me since of old. All evil karma ever committed by me since of old. On account of my beginningless greed, anger, and ignorance. Body, mouth, and thought. My body, mouth, and thought. Now I atone for it all. Now I atone for it all. All evil karma ever committed by me since of old. All evil karma ever committed by me since of old. On account of my beginningless greed, anger, and ignorance. Mouth and thought. My body, mouth and thought. Now I atone for it all. Now I atone for it all. Next we'll do Shaswe, um, which is a ritual that recognizes the Buddha mind, your Buddha mind and the mind-to-mind um, -mind transmission. Uh, this is not a purification ceremony because everyone is already pure. There's nothing to be purified. And it's to acknowledge that everything is already pure. This is the mind-to-mind -mind connectedness between teacher and student. The mind of the Buddha passing all the way down to this time and place. And it's done with a um, mountain sprig of pine and mountain water, which is from our faucet here in the temple, <laughs> which comes from the reservoir upstate. Bell. 
now we'll take refuge in the three treasures. You'll take refuge in the three treasures. This is the beginning of receiving the precepts, the moral and ethical teachings of the Buddha Dharma. It's an an expression of giving yourself wholeheartedly or unreservedly, as Dogen would say, to the Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha, the three treasures uh, for all practitioners. So um, I will be chanting this uh, well three times. On the second time, you'll be part of the calling and answering. This is taking refuge in the three treasures. Everybody, please, Gasho. I take refuge in the Buddha. I take refuge in the Dharma. I take refuge in the Sangha. I take refuge in the Buddha, the incomparably honored one. I take refuge in the Dharma, honorable for its purity. I take refuge in the Sangha, honorable for its harmony. I have taken refuge in the Buddha. I have taken refuge in the Dharma. I have taken refuge in the Sangha. I take refuge in the Buddha. I take refuge in the Dharma. I take refuge in the Sangha. I take refuge in the Buddha, the incomparably honored one. I take refuge in the Buddha, the incomparably honored one. I take refuge in the Dharma, honorable for its purity. I take refuge in the Dharma, I take refuge in the Sangha, honorable for its harmony. I take refuge in the Sangha, I have taken refuge in the Buddha. I have taken refuge in the Dharma. I have taken refuge in the Sangha. I take refuge in the Buddha. I take refuge in the Dharma. I take refuge in the Sangha. I take refuge in the Buddha, the incomparably honored one. I take refuge in the Dharma, honorable for its purity. I take refuge in the Sangha, honorable for its harmony. I have taken refuge in the Buddha. I have taken refuge in the Dharma. I have taken refuge in the Sangha. Will you maintain taking refuge in the three treasures? I vow to take refuge in the three treasures. Three treasures. And these precepts um, are usually given in a Jukai ceremony. So he's, again, receiving the precepts that many of you who took Jukai. I'm not going to elaborate on these precepts in this ceremony, but concentrate more on the five monastic vows. And we'll be doing another precept ceremony here in August, so you can see that again. But I'll also give Dogen's commentary, comments on each of the precepts. Now you'll take refuge in the three pure precepts. The first of the three pure precepts is to not create evil. The spirit of this is just be loving. Don't make harm. To not do anything that impedes the enlightenment of other beings or that impedes full humanness. Do not exclude any beings in any state, sentient or insentient, to be giving up fixed ideas about oneself and the universe and dualistic thinking. That is creating harm. This is the abiding place of all Buddhas. This is the very way of Buddhas. Do not commit evil. Will you maintain this? I vow to not commit evil. 
practicing good assist in bringing beings to their awakening. Practicing good. This is the abiding place of all Buddhas. This is the very source of all Buddhas. Practicing good. Will you maintain this? I vow to practice good. Actualizing good for others lives in activity that is non-dual, absolute, unconditional, unconditional kindness. Just do good. Actualize that where there's no others and no self. Make it actual. Actualizing good for others. Will you maintain this? I vow to actualize good for others. Next is the Ten Grave Precepts, which shows us how do we practice these three pure precepts? How do we not create harm? How do we practice good and actualize that for others? So these Ten Grave Precepts guide us in our practice. They point to the ways that we make the most binding karma with ourselves and as human beings. First of the ten grave precepts is to affirm life, do not kill. Life is non-killing. The seed of Buddha grows continuously. Maintain the wisdom life of Buddha and do not kill life. Affirm life, do not kill. Will you maintain this? I vow to affirm life, I will not kill. And we can look at this in many different ways not just taking the life of a person, but just the various ways we take life, kill life, kill opportunities for ourselves, for others. So each of these has quite a bit of depth to dig into. The second grave precept is to be giving, not steal. Do not steal. This precept brings us to the mind of grasping, possessiveness. The nature of desire is to accumulate, while some desires can be very helpful. But in a mind, a grasping mind, it is never enough or too much. It's like the embodiment of a hungry ghost. And to steal, to take that which does not belong to us, is to strengthen and manifest the grasping mind. This precept points us to not seeking contentment in things, in superficial pleasures, in power, titles, positions, in all things that we want to have and possess, to not grasp within them. It brings forth the mind of generosity, the great magnanimity of a Buddha, cultivating a mind free of attachment, free of idea of insufficiency and not enough, that we are somehow not complete, to not seek things outside yourself. Dogen said, the mind and externals are just thus. The gate of liberation is open. Be giving, do not steal. Will you maintain this? I vow to be giving, I will not steal. The third grave precept is to honor the body. Do not misuse sexuality. The three wheels, body, mouth, and mind, greed, anger, and ignorance, are pure and clean. Nothing is desired. Go the same way as the Buddha. Honor the body. Do not misuse sexuality. Will you maintain this? I vow to honor the body. I will not misuse sexuality. Tough one. All of life is sexuality. Always interconnected, moving with one another. Manifest truth, the fourth 
grave precept, manifest truth, do not lie. The Dharma wheel unceasingly turns, and there is neither excess nor incompleteness. Sweet dew permeates the universe. Gain the essence and realize the truth. Manifest truth, do not lie. Will you maintain this? About to manifest truth, I will not lie. The fifth grave precept is to proceed clearly. Do not cloud the mind. The mind is the originally pure and clear Buddha mind. Do not let it become cloudy. Do not be defiled. Proceed clearly. Do not cloud the mind. Will you maintain this? I vow to proceed clearly. I will not cloud the mind. Lots of ways that we can cloud our mind. The sixth grave precept. See the perfection. Do not speak of others' errors and faults. In the midst of the Buddha Dharma, we are the same way, the same Dharma, the same realization, and the same practice. Do not speak of others' errors and faults. Do not destroy the way. Will you maintain this? I vow to see the perfection. I will not speak of others' errors and faults. Gossip used to be Godsip. It was a way that we received higher teachings and sipped God's presence. We've somehow slipped away. See the perfection. Do not speak of others' errors and faults. Who are others? The seventh grave precept. Realize self and other as one. Do not elevate the self and blame others. Buddhas and ancestors realize the absolute emptiness and realize the whole earth. When the great body is manifested, there is neither outside or inside. When the Dharma body is manifested, there is not even a single square inch of earth upon which to stand. Realize self and others as one. Do not elevate the self and blame others. Will you maintain this? I vow to realize self and others as one. I will not elevate the self and blame others. And we know that we will do this. We, as strong as it goes one way to not, we will go the other way. So we're always trying to find the middle way and acknowledge our actions because it's such a pull to create harm sometimes. The eighth grave precept is to give generously. Do not be withholding. One phrase, one verse, 10,000 forms, 100 grasses, one dharma, one realization, all Buddhas, all ancestors. Since the beginning, there has never been anything to withhold. No withholding. Give generously. Do not be withholding. Will you maintain this? I vow to give generously. I will not be withholding. The ninth great precept is to actualize harmony. Do not be angry. It is not regressing. It is not advancing. It is not real. It is not unreal. There is an illuminated cloud ocean. There is an ornamental cloud ocean. Actualize harmony. 
Do not be angry. Will you maintain this? I vow to actualize harmony. I will not be angry. So it's interesting to look at our energies and the energy of anger and how it can serve beings. So it's not a hard and fast, do not be angry. These are the Mahayana middle way teachings. If getting angry is to serve all beings, then use that anger as a sword. The tenth grave precept, experience the intimacy of things. Do not defile the three treasures. Living the Dharma with the whole body and mind is the heart of wisdom and compassion. All virtues return to the ocean of reality. You should not comment on them. Just practice them, realize them, and actualize them. Experience the intimacy of things. Do not defile the three treasures. Will you maintain this? I vow to experience experience the intimacy of things. I will not defile the three treasures. The moral and ethical teachings of the Buddha are thus. Practice them well and bring life to the Buddha. So next we'll um, do the monastic vows. You can sit back for a minute. So um, when my teacher Daido Roshi began to form the monastic community, form a monastic body, he felt the need, the desire to create vows that were very specific to the life of a monastic to point, to describe, to shape what a monastic life is, what its foundations are. Um, And this question is very much alive. What is a monastic? In part, it's putting on robes, small part, but a part, shaving one's head, living in a monastery, in community, But there are other aspects that we have to live into. And we could say that each one of these vows both have inner aspects as well as outer aspects that we're guided to study constantly. And that's the live part, that we keep studying these vows. The outer aspect, how we appear in the world, how we relate to others, bring ourselves forward, and the inner aspect, what's happening in you, in that deep spring. Because each one of us, as practitioners, have to draw from that inner well, that inner spring, all the time. It's within each one of us. And in a monastic, it's taking place in a very particular way of how you're living this life. And the, um, at this time, <clears throat> um, as you're forming both this, these inner and outer aspects, uh, this has a quality in a novitiate of all in, and yet there's an opening. You're all in, unreservedly, and there's an opening. So it's a very interesting place, I think, because you're still in discernment, though you're deepening still clarifying and developing these vows. So they're not fully taken. So they're very dynamic. And vows should be um, demanding in some ways, because, you know, think of your own vows that you've made in your life. Um, When they're important, they have a bit of a demand on them to um, hold us to our commitment to keep discerning Right? And revowing. We have to keep revowing often. As Pema Chodron would say, she says, we're, we're like uh, um, orange juice and you got to get some of the pulp out. So we need a little squeeze and the valve, valve squeeze us a bit 
the vows are the Buddha field in which you will live and die hundreds of thousands of times throughout the day. So um, you can go into Chokhi. And I think the you, the Sangha, needs to know this as well, that um, this is what Seku is practicing, and that you can be dedicated and committed and open to go in another direction. The Sangha needs to know this, and you need to know this as well. So the first vow is developing a life of simplicity, to live without adornment, clutter, without distraction, be living as close as you can to the bare essentials of earth, water, fire, air, space, mind without hindrance, understanding what hinders your mind. It is to be freely and joyfully uh, relinquished from accumulating wealth, property, having excessive possessions, so that all of the energy that has gone into providing, creating, and continue those things is freed up to put into your monastic life and offer more to people. And as far as possessions, you become more of a caretaker or a steward of what you have, and it's shared often freely. So you're simplifying the, the pulls so that you channel for you to practice and devote yourself to practicing the path of the Buddha and being giving to others who are seeking the Dharma is um, open and, and free for you. So we have to be a kind of examining how to be clear of necessary obligations that had come with a home dweller's life. The vow of simplicity is to cultivate simplicity of body, mouth, and thought. As a monastic, you would not be receiving or accumulating wealth, though monastics do get a stipend. We get some spending money. <laughs> These days, you can get a tube of toothpaste with it. <laughs> um, you have the option, when offered money, to give it away, give it to family members, um, give it to the monastery, but not to accumulate it for yourself so that you're learning how to be dependent on the Sangha. The monastic depends on the lay community on providing us with the ability to live this life. Very exquisite, beautiful unity relationship. This vows allows you to fulfill your fulfillment in simplicity. The monastic lives a life of simplicity. Will you vow to develop a life of simplicity? I vow to develop a life of simplicity. Something you can return to always when you wander. Just go back to simplicity. We all can keep it simple. The next is a vow of stability and the development of the vow of constancy, of settling your affairs in, the, in life as we chant in the Gothon shaving the head. In this drifting, wandering world, it is very difficult to cut off our human ties, our worldly ties. This vow is constancy. It has been defined as a clear resolve, the power of remaining upright, mental equilibrium. So those are wonderful ways to reflect on stability. It's taken within the ongoing fluctuations of life. The mind is not disturbed with the changes, births and deaths, the coming and going within and without, living more from the ground of being. Outwardly, this vow points to having clarified the major decisions in your life of work, of not having children or having you had children if you had that you've raised them, 
and you can enter monastic life, that you're in a stable relationship, content in remaining on your own. If not, right now you are with Man Wai. Um, that that's where you make your universe. Monastic is your work and is within the Dharma. And when the ground of stability wavers, the ground on, on which you stand becomes challenging. You use this vow to find that stability. The stability that is very alive and flexible in this vast unknowing. The monastic lives a vow of stability. Will you vow to develop a life of stability? I vow to develop a life of stability. The next is a vow of service. And I think all of us know, it's known far and wide, that when we are generous, we feel better. When we serve, we feel better. So that's this, this vow, is to serve, to experience that deeper happiness. That's the life of a monastic. We give to others to become larger. So this vow is to make your life a life of giving, of service, of being of benefit, to cease from doing harm, because they can't go together. It's very easy to be drawn into selflessness, selfishness, to be thinking in life, what's good for just you and yours? And this vow is to free you of that because your nature is giving. All creatures' natures are to give. So this vow allows you to, your life to be one large offering to every person, to every being, to every creature, in every situation, at all places. The monastic lives a life of service. Will you vow to develop a life of service? I vow to develop a life of service. The next is a vow of selflessness. Now, this is the heart of being, the lifeblood of the Dharma, of life itself. Selflessness is prajna wisdom. It's compassion. It's skillful means to realize and actualize in every moment, this is not you. You are not this. This is not yours and to find that again and again in your very body and mind, which doesn't belong to you, but it's yours to use. It's yours to take responsibility for. Because you have no abiding place, you can awaken the mind of Buddha. You can bring forth the heart of compassion. You can manifest as any being in any form that is the freedom of Kanan Bodhisattva. Whenever suffering appears, there is a sense of self present always. When we're suffering, there's a sense of self present always. When we enter blame, jealousy, stinginess, a sense of self is present. Selflessness is a direct experience. It is an everyday practice. It's your nature. This vow is to, in earnestness, live your life every day in every thought, word, and action with selflessness, examining, practicing, realizing, actualizing, and plumbing the depths of this, because at the same time, it's not a thing. It's something realized as we truly return to our nature. The monastic lives a life of selflessness. We vow to develop a life of selflessness. I vow to develop a life of selflessness. And the fifth vow of a monastic is to accomplish the Buddha's way. Each vow is actually 
accomplishing the Buddha's way, living a life in harmony, is the spirited manner of a Buddha. And the Buddha was a person who studied causes and conditions, was an incredible student of life, of the Dharma, of maintaining the life of a seeker that you find the inspiration from all these incredible ancestors and people around you who have Buddha nature, who have developed themselves with courage, patience, kindness, generosity, humor, fierceness. We live at a very different time than the Buddha, and we practice the Mahayana path. So this vow of the monastic is to have great respect and reverence for the wisdom in our tradition, in any tradition, really, of Buddha Dharma, to uphold and maintain it and recognize life is a living experience. The monastic lives in accord with the Buddha's way. Will you vow to develop the Buddha's way? I vow to develop the Buddha's way. Stay in Chucky. These 16 precepts, the three treasures, the three pure precepts, the 10 grave precepts, are handed down by Shakyamuni Buddha generation after generation to me. These five monastic vows have been given to me by my teacher, Daido Roshi. Now I give them to you. Will you maintain them well? I will. Will you maintain them well? I will. Will you really maintain them well? I will. Three vows. If you watch monastics carefully, a lot of their life is dealing with their clothing. (laughs) Getting used to that. Everybody, please gusho. When sentient beings receive the sila, They enter the realm of the Buddhas, which is none other than the great enlightenment. Truly they are the children of the Buddha. When sentient beings receive the sila, they enter the realm of the Buddhas, which is none other than the great enlightenment. Truly they are the children of the Buddha. When sentient beings receive the sila, they enter the realm of the Buddhas, which is none other than the great enlightenment. Truly they are the children of the Buddha. Now, Sekku will sit back and receive his new rope that's called the Karoma. Monastic form comes from many different elements, from India to China to Japan. So um, this Karoma robe comes from a Japanese lineage. So he'll exchange his postulant robe. Sometimes these garments can feel like our own clothing so right. And sometimes, at least for myself, I might look look down and go, what? <laughs> you know, who is this? Head shaved garments. <laughs> and then sometimes it's like, oh yeah, so right. Later, when one's fully adorned, ad- ordained, adorned, um, we receive the uh, kesa, that's the this Buddha's robe here. Kian in this case is the jisha, who helps somebody get dressed. 
There's so many times I would come out in the hallway and my teacher would be adjusting. We all adjust each other. This is the Raksu that you were given when you took Jukai, the Buddha's robe, mini version, which you'll continue to wear. You can help me. The lineage of ancestors. This is the lineage from Shakyamuni Buddha, where the person who takes Jukai, their name is added to that red line upon their Jukai ceremony. Mountains and Rivers Order of Zen Buddhism. This is to certify that Simon Seku Harrison, having fulfilled the novitiate training requirements of the, mount, of the Mountains and Rivers Order, has on this fifth day of February, 2023, received the 16 precepts of the Buddha Way, novitiate vows, lineage chart, Raksu, and monastic robe. Pucho Hojin, preceptor. I think just bow to this song. So um, usually there's a, a circumnambulation, but since the rows are full, Seko will make three full bows to you, the Sangha, and you can return with a seated bow. You can just sit back. I just want to say a little bit about the monastic calling. You can sit back. <laughs> Traditionally, we view the monastic as someone enclosed by physical boundaries, adhering to a particular spiritual tradition, bound by vows. It is this, but it's much more. What is the vocation of a monastic we've been looking at? So I went to Thomas Merton, and he described it as a person in motion who seeks stillness. They have embraced all of life, passing beyond all these limiting forms, while retaining all that is best and most universal in them, finally giving birth to a fully comprehensive self, accepting not only their own community, their own society, their own friends, their own culture, but all of person kind. The life of the monastic is the life of vows blossoming into experience. A conversion takes place, a change in one's whole life, in your attitudes, from those of the world to those of community, which happens by being in it. Almost imperceptibly, sometimes, sometimes dramatically, It is both retaining the monastic enclosure traditions for its values and a a life of guarding one's heart to open it for and to others in the most beneficial ways. Whatever glimpses you have, may they constantly be integrated and offered the teachings of the Dharma, taking refuge, the precepts, the monastic vows are all extraordinary improbabilities, kind of impossible aspirations. We know that from the four bodhisattva vows about doing good and refraining from creating harm to whomever receives them. We're likely to never succeed at it. We see that if the demand is large, so is the promise. If the healing is large, 
so is the healing of the world. To liberate actions from greed, anger, and delusion, to practice the precepts, the paramitas of giving, loving kindness, joyful effort, samadhi, meditation, prajna. We have to develop that. The Buddha said, if we don't, it won't, this won't work. It won't flow. We have to keep developing those paramitas. And the Buddha said, I would, in all of his teaching, he says, I wouldn't ask you to do it if I haven't done it. I like that. Truly, it is a revolution to break taboos within ourselves, see our false views, to attentively observe our life is not easy. To have this resolve and enjoy this great matter and offer it to others. This is how a bodhisattva enters in the brightness and the darkness, as one teacher I just read, enlivening and darkening. Enlightening and darkening. May insights come like a swift sword cutting through the complications and confusions and always be coupled with the slower movements of your heart your warm beating heart, the inhale and the exhale, and the beat of that muscle all lying on this vastness. May your life go well. May our lives go well. Thank you. Thanks for listening. You can find more Dharma Talks, interviews, and events at zmm.org slash media.